ask that today as we study the topic of the seal of God and of the mark of the beast, that you would be our teacher. I thank you and I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. The handout I gave you is big, but you should know that it's not done. Um, I suppose when it gets done, it'll be about twice the size that it is. And I'm not really going to use it so much in talking to you as you're going to read it when I'm done. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. Maybe I'll begin by making a point about parenthetical prophecies unrelated to the first part of this lecture. What do I mean by parenthetical prophecy? I mean that in Daniel Revelation, you have many events that are traceable in history books. The rise and fall of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the papacy, the rise of the proto-European tribes that became Europe, the rise of America, and then the very final events. These things can be traced in history books as far as we have them. But then also in Daniel Revelation, there are some events that cannot be traced in history books. You have the investigative judgment, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the same thing. You have the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, described in Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 through 4. I'll say Christ's intercession. You have there described the opening of the book of Daniel and the Advent movement. That's found in Revelation chapter 10. While it does happen in history, it'd be hard to find it in history, for example. Then you have the... That's probably enough examples of what I'm trying to communicate. Except Revelation 7, you have the sealing of God's people. Let me just ask plainly, can you see Jesus interceding for us in the heavenly sanctuary? Can you see it with your eyes? Can newspapers report on it? Can they report on the sealing that's going on, sealing God's people? They can't report on the beginning of the judgment. They won't know when probation closes. In Daniel and Revelation, these kind of historically invisible events are often connected to these kind of historical events in such a way as to show us where in earth's history to look for them. So Revelation 7 is a good example. You have the six seals, and the fifth one describes the investigative judgment. The sixth one describes the signs that show Christ's coming is near, and then even His coming... And then the seventh one is the trip to heaven. And in between them is the Revelation 7, the sealing process. What does it tell us? It tells us that here is an invisible process that's going on that in time relates to the sixth seal. That is the signs of the end of the time, Christ's second coming, and answer to the question, who shall be able to stand? You could say Revelation 7 is a parenthetical prophecy because you have six seals before it and one seal after it and it's sort of stuck in the middle. 
In Revelation 10, you have six trumpets before it, one trumpet after it, and it's sort of stuck in the middle. I'd put a dot after it and look in a dictionary. I don't know how to spell, and this is being recorded. The seals are interestingly named. When you look at Daniel chapter 8, you have um, sanctuary animals, horns and lambs and a goat and a cleansing of a sanctuary and a pagan sanctuary and a daily in other words, everything is worded in sanctuary symbols because what's the subject of Daniel 8? It's a sanctuary. Now you come to Revelation 6 through 8, and what, how is this book held together and closed? Everything is spoken of in terms of seals. There's a first seal, a second seal, a third seal, a fourth seal, a fifth seal, a sixth seal. But what's it all about? The focus of the prophecy is on Revelation 7. It's all pointing to the sealing of God's people. It's all about the seal. That's enough to get into Revelation 7 and just go forward from there. Revelation chapter 7, looking at verse 1. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the sea, nor on the, on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Do you find uh, winds blowing anywhere else in Daniel and Revelation on the sea? Where is that? The a beast. Daniel 7, exactly that. Winds blowing on the sea is what brings up New World Empires. That is cataclysmic wars and problems. Now we come to just before the end of time, and are winds ready to blow on the earth? They're ready to blow, but they're being held back for something. Verse 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. What is this time of trouble waiting for? It's waiting for God's people to be sealed. The first thing we find in Revelation 7, in period of time, is that the sealing process is the immediate predecessor to the time of trouble. In Revelation chapter 7, you have the time of trouble immediately preceded and being held up until the end of the sealing process. What do you find in Ezekiel 9? you find there a sealing process. And the sealing process is followed by the slaughter of those that aren't sealed. What do you find in Daniel 12, 11, 12? You find a message from the east followed by the close of probation in the time of trouble. Where does this message come from? 
Revelation 7. The angel ascends from the, from the east. What I'm trying to communicate is that it's not just in Revelation 7, but that it's consistent where this issue is talked about, that the seal of God is what immediately precedes, that is the sealing process, immediately precedes the time of trouble. Observe one more thing with me in verse 3. Who is it that is sealed? It is. So if I were to ask you, which comes first, the servant of God or the sealed servant of God, you would say the... Yeah, in other words, you are a servant of God before you are sealed. And in Revelation 7, there's nothing more clear than that it's possible that many servants of God do not have the seal. You can learn a lot just from developing that thought. There are many servants of God that don't have the seal. What's the time of trouble waiting for? It's waiting for these two categories to become the same. One category is called the servants of God, and the other category is called those that are sealed. Until those two categories are the same, the time of trouble is not coming in Revelation chapter 7. All right, let's go forward from there. Well, we can develop from this idea that the servants, you're a servant of God before you're sealed. Listen, when you become a servant of God, there are certain things that change in your life. For example, the Spirit of God is active in your life. It's by the Spirit that you overcome the lust of the flesh. So as a servant of God... You're not a servant of sin. Isn't that clear in Romans 6? We're talking about people who are victorious over sin, but are they yet sealed? Okay, so you're saying they're not two... I mean, you're saying the servants of God and then the sealed servants of God, they're not two separate people. They're just waiting for the sealing to happen from the servants of God. I'm saying it's as plain as day in Revelation 7 and in Ezekiel 9 that there are people who are servants of God that are not sealed. As of yet. As of yet. And could they die before they're sealed? Would they still be a servant of God? They would. But what's the time of trouble waiting for? So that there will not be anyone in the category that are servants of God that are not sealed. But I'm also getting at some things that I haven't said yet. Let's leave this for a minute and just develop some other thoughts. So far, way, way back in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, which is the origin of so much that's in the New Testament, God gives the Ten Commandments. It's described there in Deuteronomy 5. It's reviewed there, you might say. And then we're told that these things are to be... Let's turn to Deuteronomy 6 and just look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 6, coming just after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're looking at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. 
Now we're in 6.6. 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. What do 5 and 6 have in common? God is looking for a heart religion. We're to love God with all our soul, with all our might, with all our heart. And His words are to be in our heart. Where are His words to be? And it's these words. But you should know which words He's talking about. These words. It's the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Where are the Ten Commandments to be? They're to be in the heart. Stop for a minute and go to chapter 5. Just back a page for you. For you, and look at verse 28. And the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto you. They have well said all that they have spoken. What was it the people had said? That's right, they said, We're going to keep your commandments. Verse 29 Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God says they've said the right thing with their lips, but what's the difficulty that's going to prevent them from doing the right thing? It's what's in their heart. They don't have the right kind of heart. Oh, that there was such a heart in them. Then is there such a heart that you could have in someone where you would obey God's commandments? It is a possible thing, and chapter 6 discusses it. There is a heart that has the commandments in the heart. Verse 7, And you shall teach them the commandments diligently unto your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and listen, and they shall be, what does it say? As frontlets between thine eyes. There's something literal in the verse and something symbolic. Bind them for a sign on your hand, but what about in, in the forehead? It's as a sign in the forehead. In other words, what you're trying to do when you put them on your hand and when you put them all around and when you talk about them everywhere, what are you trying to do in all those cases? You're trying to get them into your mind. They're, you're trying to get the Ten Commandments to be like a sign between the eyes. That is, in the forehead. And you shall write them upon the post of thine house and on thy gates. I just want to make this thought sink into our minds. So in Egypt, you have plagues coming. The plagues are a time of trouble on Egypt. And when the plagues are over, God's people are going to go to Canaan. Is this similar to the book of Revelation? A time of trouble on the world, and when the time of trouble is over, God's people go to heaven. And how do you escape the seven or the ten plagues that fall on Egypt? You have blood written on your doorposts. That is a sign. And when the angel sees that sign, what does he do? The slaughtering angel passes over you. Is it a picture of the seal of God? 
It's very much like the picture in Ezekiel 9. There you have slaughtering angels, and what are they looking for? They're looking for a mark, and they're not going to come near anyone that has the mark. But what is it in in Deuteronomy 6 that is to be written on your doorpost? It's the Ten Commandments. What is to be in between your eyes? It's the Ten Commandments. And when the Bible characterizes in the book of Revelation, those that do not accept the mark of the beast, you know the Thurnell's message is the warning about the mark of the beast. How does it characterize those that don't receive the mark of the beast? It says, here are they that keep the commandments of God. There are some other contrasts regarding the mark and the seal that are worth noting. The mark of the beast, can it be observed by men? Can men see the mark of the beast? I'm getting a mixed bag of answers. Let me tell you what I'm looking at for data. In Revelation chapter 13, you can't buy or sell unless you have the... Then do men have a way of evaluating whether or not you have the mark? They do, because they have a law about it. And the law says what you have to do, and if you don't do it, you're disobeying the law. The mark of the beast is something that can be observed by men. But there's no such indication that the seal of God can be observed by men. No such indication. Except a possible absence of the mark. You could make an inference about it. This is a fundamental truth of Scripture that man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Do you remember? That's in your handout if you want to find the reference. It's in Samuel somewhere. What is the, what is the difference between the mark and the seal? It's that man is looking on the outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. He's always looked at the heart. What is he looking for in the heart? He's looking for the seal. He's looking to see if the Ten Commandments have been written there. That's what's very apparent. Now let's talk about some other tests. There are some other tests that will give us some hints about the mark of the beast and the seal of God. The very first test that, that the world was submitted to was Adam and Eve in a garden. In the garden, there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there are some other things that were told about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How did it look? It looked good for food. And something to be desired to make one wise. And there was a serpent. The serpent wanted Adam to eat of this tree. But how did he go about getting Adam to eat of the tree? He got Eve to eat of the tree. And Eve became a medium to convince Adam to eat of the tree. That tests. we ought to note some things about it. There was nothing in the tree that we can see that looked like a moral test It didn't look like an issue of morality. The only moral thing about the tree was that God had said something about it. 
That was all. God had made a distinction between that tree and others. And so the test was really not about the tree. It was about a relation to the word of God. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what happens when man came to part of the word of God and didn't live by it? Man died. Did you follow that point? Man lives by every word. If man stops and doesn't live by a certain word, then man doesn't live because man lives by every word. Now we go outside of the Garden of Eden. Now let's first go all the way to the end of time. So in the end of time, we have the very same situation again. We have a serpent. And does he put pressure on the world to receive the mark? And does he have a medium of a woman? He has a medium of a woman who's putting the pressure on the world. And who are the 144,000? They're those that pass over the ground where Adam fell and don't fall. That is, that they obey God even in that area where they see no morality themselves. Yes. I'll say it so differently that you'll understand it better. The command, thou shalt not kill, does not test man's loyalty to the word of God. The command, thou shalt not steal, does not test the loyalty. The command, thou shalt not commit adultery, does not test the loyalty. I mean, they don't test the loyalty in the sense that the tree did in Eden. Because we can see that it would be bad to kill or steal or commit adultery. But the test in the Garden of Eden was a test that showed whether or not you would obey God when you couldn't see any sense in it. And in that respect, it makes one commandment more useful as a test than any other. It might be interesting to you all to know that that great man, and I believe we'll see him in heaven, John Bunyan, for all the good things he wrote, he also wrote a book called something like The Seventh Day Sabbath. And it's an attack on Sabbatarianism. I have it, maybe you want to read it. He, of course, he's a very witty and bright man and biblical. And he has a number of arguments he brings to bear, but the one that is the strongest to him, that he emphasizes the most, is that there's no morality in the Sabbath. That a, that a man that is cultured and taught about how to love his neighbor and love his brother will see not to lie or kill or steal and will realize that it's low to bow down to idols, that man's conscience can see the other nine commandments, but here's the one that has no morality in it. And this was the weak point in Bunyan's argument. That's exactly what makes it a test of living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What kind of morality does it test? Faith.
Not only does the seal have parallels in history, but the mark of the beast also has some parallels in history. Particularly in the story of Isaiah. Isaiah was a king. That meant that he was over the civil affairs of the nation. He had a palace. Also in the city there was a temple. And who was over the temple? The priests. And did God intend that there would be a separation between the palace and the temple administration? He did. So who was the first king to try to get those two things together? It was the first king. That was Saul, right? And you remember what what the result was of him trying to do the work of a priest? He was rejected of God. Now you come to Isaiah, who for a much longer period of time than Saul, is faithful in doing God's work. Then, maybe you might say to reward himself for his faithfulness, he decides to, to come to a higher level of spirituality than earthly administration can put him at. And he takes upon him the job of being a priest. That is, he carries a censer and goes to minister at the altar. This is the th- People who do this are symbols of Jesus. Except Isaiah isn't. He's the symbol of Antichrist. What happens when he goes to minister at the altar? For our purposes, the most important thing is something happens in his forehead. He receives leprosy. Where is the mark of the beast put? And who is this beast? This beast is that very entity that has tried to unite things that God has put apart. The administration of a nation with the administration of the priesthood. And in putting them together, Isaiah became quite a figure of that beast. The book of Daniel is full of examples that are interesting pictures of the seal of God and mark of the beast. I'm thinking particularly of Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. What is the parallel to the seal of God in Daniel 3? What is it that marks people for their obedience to the commandments? It's standing up. Standing up is the figure or the parallel to the seal of God in Daniel 3. Just to make our point, what is the symbol or parallel to the seal of God in Daniel 6? It's kneeling down. What do they have in common? The chapters are written almost as opposites of each other to show something. It isn't the standing and it isn't the kneeling, but it is the obedience of a command or the disobedience of a command, the obedience of a command to God or the obedience of a worship command of the state.
when I say these are parallel, I mean that the picture in Revelation in Daniel 3 has so many elements in common with Revelation 13 that it's hard to miss the parallels. You have not only Babylon, but you have an image made like unto Babylon. You have men bowing to the image, but when they bow to the image, they're really bowing to the king. You have a command to all kindreds, nation, tongues, and people to bow down to the image. Like in Revelation 13, you have the whole world doing it. And you have a few that stand up, and the few that stand up are promised death, like they are in Revelation chapter 13. I really don't plan to make this a big part of this talk, but I just want you to see that God puts so many elements there in common to help us see a picture of the mark of the beast and the seal of God. So what have we established as firmly as I know how? I mean, there's more we could say about it, but it's that the seal of God is in the forehead and the law of God is in the forehead. The law of God is written in the forehead by the Spirit. That's the special work of the Spirit. References for that that are interesting. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 2, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, except I think it might be verse 2, so I'm going to go look. Let's turn to that one. Let's look at 1 Peter. I'll tell you in just a minute, Katie. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Yeah, it is verse 2, not verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 says that who are the elect? This ought to be important to us because in the context of the end of time, who is it that's deceived? The elect. Of course, the answer you give is based on the right verse, but it comes out wrong. Everyone except the elect is deceived. Everyone is deceived except the elect. So we want to be elect. And who are the elect ones? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, there's one thing. The people that are elect are the ones that God looked forward, could see something about them. What was he looking for when he looked forward? Through the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That sprinkling you learn from Hebrews represents the cleaning up of the conscience, that is character development. What is God looking for? Sanctification of the Spirit and obedience. Now let's go look at that other passage, 2 Thessalonians 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you. How did he chose, choose you? Through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. What is the special work of the Spirit? Sanctification. It's sanctification. The Spirit's work in my life is to sanctify me. That's what the Spirit is working to do, to sanctify me. But what is this work of sanctification? Listen, it's this. 
the writing of the law in my heart. Can the law be written in my heart if I've never heard the law? It can, according to Romans 2. In Romans 2, so the Spirit is the one writing this law in the heart. I'm not writing it in my own heart, but the Spirit is writing it there, and the Spirit can write the law in those who've never heard it if they will submit to the moral understanding that God is giving them. If there's any other contribution I could make before we go further biblically, it would be to suggest to you that the law of God is not written instantaneously in the heart. That it is written incrementally. That is that the basic command, thou shalt not steal, is written in your heart when you choose to not steal. But when you realize that the Bible enforces sharing the gospel and that you have a debt to do it, and you submit to that, that is written into your heart, which is also part of the second commandment. Thou shalt not steal God's words from your neighbor, Jeremiah 23. And when you accept tithing, the principle of giving one-tenth of what you believe is yours back to God because it's his, that principle is written in your heart as you submit to it, and that's part of that same commandment. That is, when does God write principles into our mind? It's when we submit to them. Now, anyone who is a servant of God has submitted to some principles. That is, that the Spirit has been writing some things in their mind. But are you a servant of God before you have received the seal of God? It's very clear. So that we might want to say that the sealing represents the completion of a process. The completion of the process of the writing of the law in the mind. I, is it clear that you're a servant of God before the seal is in your mind? That was the thing we started with. I want to prove that the thing I just suggested, but it's really up ahead of ways, so I want to come and get, lay some more groundwork for the mark of the beast and the seal. Yes? The writing of the law in the mind. And what I'm saying, Katie, is that God has been sealing you ever since you became a Christian, and he's still sealing you. It's by the Holy Spirit you can say that we are being sealed. But that work isn't done yet. And when it's done, you can say that we are sealed in a perfect tense. In other words, the work is completed. Here is where Adventists have had a disconnect with evangelicals. It's very clear in the Bible. I, the verses are in your handout. In Colossians and Ephesians, it's very clear that the sealing is done by the Spirit. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. This, we're sealed by the Spirit who is the earnest of our inheritance. And Paul speaks about those who are sealed. Kind of like he speaks about those who are sanctified. Um, but does that mean that they're done with sanctification? There's some sanctification yet to be done. Does it mean that they're done with sealing? No, we're being sealed. By whom we are sealed, he says in another place. Um, the sealing is a process that goes on. And it, 
our seal is incremental in the Bible because you can set this to your seal. Or look at this passage. It's a classic one for us. Isaiah chapter 8. Yeah. Okay, so thank you for bringing that out. They are servant of God, and they are sealed in the sense that the sealing work is going on, and not in the sense that it is not yet finished. That's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Isaiah chapter 8, and we're looking at verse 19. Mm, We can't start there. Remember, if we start there, we'll miss it completely. Look up at verse 16. It says, bind the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Are they disciples first or sealed first? Disciples first. Isn't it very clear? They're disciples first, and what's to be, and they're to be sealed. But what are they sealed with? Testimony. It wasn't, and the law, right? The testimony, the law. Now, isn't this something that's helpful to us from Revelation? Because don't we find revelation? Here are servants, disciples, and they need to be sealed. If we ask the question, what do they need to be sealed with? The answer would be with the seal the law among the disciples. Isn't that a helpful verse? It doesn't surprise us at all because it's what we'd expect since the seal is in the forehead and what's written into the forehead. That's the law of God. It's put there in the mind. Yeah, that's so clear. It's the new covenant. Turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. I know for some of you, maybe for all of you, this will be a review. But for those who are listening to this, it might not be. So I'm going to say it anyway, and it's not for Katie. Daniel chapter 9, and we're looking at verse 4. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Just a few thoughts from there. Who is the covenant honored? I mean, with whom does God, with whom does God keep his covenant? Yeah, that's very clear. It's with those that love him and keep his commandments. That's the class with whom God keeps his covenant. The class that have the covenant confirmed to them. Now look down at verse 27. Speaking about Jesus in his earthly life, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. But who does God keep his covenant with? So what is Jesus trying to do for the people? Trying to lead lead them to love God and keep his commandments. Because he's confirming the covenant to them. And who is the covenant confirmed to? Those that love him and keep his commandments. If we look at the life of Jesus, is that apparent that he was trying to lead people to love God and to keep his commandments? Well, it's apparent all the way through. His acts of mercy were to lead people to love God and his acts of forgiveness were to lead them to obey and he'd say go and sin no more 
And he say, and if you don't repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he says, disciples say, tell them to repent. What does repent mean? It means stop sinning or turn away from, yeah, exactly. The work of Christ was to lead people to love God and keep his commandments. And so what did Jesus say when he was on earth? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What was he doing? He was confirming the covenant. Look at chapter 11. I mean Daniel 11. Daniel 11 and verse 22. Speaking about Jesus at the same time, it says, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him, him there is the Roman power, and shall be broken, yea, also the prince of the covenant. So the Roman power crucified Jesus. But what name does Jesus give to himself when he's crucified? He's the prince of the covenant. He is the prince, that is, he is the ruler over those who submit to his covenant. Well, that makes sense because his covenant is the writing of his law in the heart. What does the Bible call that law? Among other things, it calls it a royal law. In other words, it's the law of a king or of a prince. Well, who's the prince? It's Jesus. I'm getting this too complex for you. I'm going to try to say it simple again. In verse 22, Jesus is crucified as the prince of the covenant. So what is Jesus trying to do in his life here on earth? What's the goal in his mind? How does he identify himself when he dies? He's the one trying to promote this covenant of the law being written in the heart. Now look down to verse 28. Speaking of the adjusted Roman Empire, that is what we would call the apostasy, the Roman apostasy. Then shall he return into his land with great riches, and his heart shall be against the holy covenant. And he shall do exploits and return to his own land. Verse 30. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the, what does it say? Against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that, what's it say? It looks like that after the time of Jesus, the prince of the covenant who confirms the covenant, that there's going to arise a Roman apostasy that is going to cooperate with people that forsake the covenant. Why does he cooperate with them? Because his heart is against the covenant. Verse 32, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt. If I could say this thought as simply as I see it in Daniel 9 and 11, the battle is between the prince of the covenant and the beast that hates the covenant. Now we come to, to the book of Revelation and we find again a battle. And the battle is between the beast and God's people. And what are God's people? How are they summarized? Those that keep the commandments of God. 
then why is the beast after them? Because the beast hates the covenant. The beast's heart is against the covenant. His what? His heart is against it. And where is the law of God to be written? It's to be written in the heart. And, and now we find that the beast also has a heart that can be described. It's a heart that's against the law of God. And people are going to receive a mark of the beast. Maybe when we've settled these points as well as we have, we're ready to introduce the idea of Sabbath into this, this study. What is the Sabbath? We know it's a sign. As Adventists, we've sort of skipped a step. We've said the Sabbath is a sign. A sign is a seal. Therefore, the Sabbath is the seal. But if you're going to say the Sabbath is a sign, what's more important is to say what it's a sign of. The Sabbath is a sign of something. What's it a sign of? It's a sign of sanctification. The Sabbath is a symbol of sanctification. It helps us understand sanctification and it is a test of sanctification. The Sabbath is the sign of sanctification that is the very one that was attacked by the Roman apostasy. And why would the apostasy attack the Sabbath? Because the apostasy is against the covenant. And the Sabbath is a sign of the sanctification that God does in the life. I know for a fact that when I have talked for 50 minutes tomorrow, I will not have even gone over half of the material in your handout yet. So before Wednesday morning, you're assigned to read that thing. That is today and tomorrow. And um, is it done yet, what I tell you? It's not, but there's a lot in there. That's enough for right now. Let me go to Miss Katie first. Go ahead. I have one for you. Are you saying that I gave the wrong lecture today, Mr. Maria? What's it? What's it list for today? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, so the answer is I'm way ahead of you then. And I'll come back to those things. Let, let me close and then come to this. All right. Let's have a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would bless our time here, that we could come away with an understanding, a fuller understanding of what this seal and mark is all about. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus.